prepare your ears, humans. Happy, sad, confused begins now. Today on Happy, Sad, Confused, two Horowitzes for the price of one, and maybe one in spirit. Hey guys, I'm Josh Horowitz. Welcome to another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Thanks as always for joining me on my little old podcast, a, a pet project that began over six years ago and one that remains uh, a labor of love and one that I derive a lot of joy from and hopefully you do too. Uh, if you notice, you know, there's a little extra sadness, a little more weight in my voice today. Um, it's because it's been a, an especially tough time in my life recently, to be perfectly frank. Uh, if you follow me on social media, maybe you know this already. If you don't, here's the sad news. My dad passed away very recently. Um, it was a, a tough, brief um, illness that he confronted at the end. He's been uh, um, ill to some degree for many years. We've, I've referenced it in past conversations. Um, he, he had Parkinson's for over 18 years. Uh, really, he actually was astounding um, bearing the weight of that, that illness over the years. It really it affected him, but, but did not really affect his quality of life to a, 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 a large level. He was able to enjoy his life, enjoy his family, enjoy his work. Um, enjoy traveling up until uh, recent times. Um, my dad was a huge part of my life and a huge part of why I do what I do. He loved movies. He uh, loved talking about movies. Um, in the last few months of his life, one of the one of my rituals for him was to uh, was to go through the movie listings every day. <laughs> Look at all like the look at all the channels and make my movie recommendations to him, uh, because that was that was really his main source of enjoyment beyond obviously uh, hanging with his family was to watch old movies that he that he loved. I of course was always trying to expose him to new movies that I thought he would enjoy. He always wanted to go to the tried and true, the ones that he always uh, found comfort in, um, which which kind of weirdly dovetails very nicely with what I've been doing on this show in recent months, talking about comfort movies. Um, you know, we, we went dark for the last couple of weeks, um, for understandable reasons while I was dealing with, um, family stuff and dealing with, uh, just a lot of emotion and pain and, um, but it felt, it felt like it was important to start to get back on the horse and start to do, do what I do, uh, for a living best, which is entertaining you guys with conversations for MTV and Comedy Central and here on the podcast. And I was trying I was debating on, on how to kind of kickstart the podcast again, what to do again. It felt weird to just come back with a, a just another um, actor or filmmaker that I had some kind of relationship with. I wanted something that felt a little bit special and hopefully could honor my dad in some way. Um, and it occurred to me, why not have my brother on? My brother, Adam Horowitz, who I talk about frequently on the podcast. Um, he is and was and always will remain four and a half years older than me and was a big influence because of that growing up on my movie-going habits. We went to the movies all the time in New York City. He was the way I saw movies. He took me to movies. It was really Adam Horowitz's choices in movies that influenced my love of movies most. Um, so it felt right to have my brother on the podcast today, not to talk about one comfort movie, but to talk about sort of how we how we grew up and how we came to consume and enjoy movies as much as we did. Um, and also to talk about the movies that my dad kind of passed on to us, his comfort movies, the movies, the genres that he loved most, the kinds of filmmakers and actors he gravitated towards most. So this is a conversation with my brother Adam about growing up in New York and seeing just a ton of movies and sneaking into movies and seeing double features and and watching movies not on VHS but on our beloved old Selectivision player which you'll hear about a little bit more later um, it's really a conversation about um, how I came to love movies through family and experience growing up um, by way of introduction about my brother in case you don't know Adam is a hugely successful uh, screenwriter and uh, television creator um, his credits are are long uh, they include uh, co-creating once upon a time uh, he was a writer and executive producer of lost he co-wrote Tron legacy 
Um, he's done a lot of amazing, amazing work um, on sort of the other side of what I do. Um, and I've only interviewed him a couple times over the years. I interviewed him a couple times at Comic-Con. Um, and it was always a little bit challenging, a little bit interesting, a little bit odd. Because, um, you know, how do you, you talk to your family in different ways than you would talk to somebody in a professional, quote-unquote, professional interview setting. Um, so this conversation might sound, I don't know, it sounds somewhere in between an interview and a conversation between two brothers, hopefully. <laughs> um, so I hope you get a sense of our passion for movies our love for movies, our love for our dad. This is hopefully a, uh, a small way to honor Larry Horowitz and what he did for us. And uh, I hope you guys enjoy it. Um, this, uh, this felt like the right way back into Happy, Sad, Confused. And I also just want to say, so many of you sent lovely, beautiful messages over social media. Social media gets a bad rap. Instagram and Twitter, you know, they're the... the the darkest portals of our minds right now, but there is some good there. And I got so many lovely messages from people I know and people I don't know that have just listened to the podcast or watched my stuff. And each and every one of them truly, truly helped me through this time and will continue to do so. And I, I appreciate your support more than ever. Um, because, uh, it ain't easy, as, as, as many of you know. It ain't easy losing a parent and, uh, and a loved one. So um, I thank you guys for helping me through this, uh, this difficult time. Um, happy to say that I am back on the horse. I am making new stuff. Um, I just did a couple of really cool conversations for uh, the folks that run New York Comic Con are putting on this cool thing called Metaverse. So if you want to check out some two really special conversations, uh, that I did, you should um, follow, follow New York Comic Con on YouTube. That's the first step. And this weekend, between August 13th and August 16th, they're doing a, a slew of really cool YouTube you know, video events. They're all free, um, and they're, they're interviews and panel discussions, and I did two for them, and they're actually going to come back around on the podcast in future weeks. So if you just want to hold tight and listen to it on the podcast, that's fine. But if you want to watch these videos and watch the, uh, the conversations uh, as soon as possible, I highly recommend you subscribe to New York Comic Con on YouTube. Um, this Friday uh, is a conversation, an hour-long dissection of Mad Max Fury Road with the genius that is George Miller. I can't tell you how amazing an opportunity this was. This is something I've wanted to do for a while. George was on the podcast five years ago talking about Fury Road. He was sweet enough to come back on the podcast and come back on uh, this kind of metaverse conversation, whatever we want to call it, uh, for an hour-long deep dive into what makes what made Mad Max Fury Road. So if you're at all a fan of filmmaking and Mad Max, you're going to love this conversation. I also chatted with Joe Keery, who uh, is fantastic, up-and-coming actor. You know him, of course, from Stranger Things. As Steve Harrington has a new film called Spree out, uh, out August 14th. Um, and that's just a fun conversation um, about his life and career, Stranger Things, Spree, his favorite comfort movie. Again, go subscribe to New York Comic Con uh, on YouTube and you'll be able to check those out. And if you want to just hang tight, you can also enjoy the audio versions on Happy, Sad, Confused in the weeks to come. Anyway, all right, onwards and upwards. Happy, Sad, Confused is back. I hope you guys enjoy this conversation. It's a, it's a, it's a personal one. Here is me and my slightly older brother, Adam Horowitz. Well, this is a, a very exciting first for Happy, Sad, Confused. It only took uh, about six years and 300 episodes to add a second Horowitz to the mix. You know the more famous Horowitz, Adam Horowitz from Once Upon a Time, Lost, Amazing Stories, Tron Legacy. He's the uh, celebrated West Coast Horowitz. It's Adam Horowitz. Hi, Adam. Hi, my brother. Hello, brother Josh. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I'm the more famous, but I'm the more West Coast. You are definitely the more West Coast and arguably more famous. Uh, the good thing about this is this is the kind of conversation we're going to have is basically what we talk about anyway. Like literally 90% of our conversations, I feel like just evolve into talking about the same hundred movies we watched as kids. Is that fair to say? Mm-hmm. Um, so as I was saying in the intro to this, um, it felt weird to like dive back into my podcast with just like a normal old episode. Um, you know, since my last episode, um, our dad passed away and, you know, certainly 
he was a big part, I think, for both of us in, in introducing us to a lot of films uh, in different ways. Um, and I think I just wanted to like start by talking a little bit about how we consumed movies as kids. Because I, I feel like I can fit them into kind of three buckets the way I saw movies. And the main one to your, you can take credit for this, or I don't know if it's a thing to take credit for, is I think I saw most movies in the company of you. You're my older brother. You were then, you still are. <laughs> so you, You're catching up, but I am still older. No, I'm not catching up. That will never happen, sadly. Um, so is that, I mean, is that fair to say? Do, do you remember like seeing most of our movies just together? Like more than our parents yeah. taking us to movies? Well, I, there was a certain point where it felt like our parents decided that they could not keep up with our desire to see movies. Right. And, <laughs> That's true. And then they just gave up and let us just go about our movie going business with each other and hoped that it didn't ruin us. Um, it seems like it didn't. If anything, it actually, we got both got careers out of it. Right. I mean, there's a possibility that our lives could have gone in much better directions without them, but we'll, we'll probably never know. Um, there might be another timeline where we um, are, you know, very successful dentists or something. I don't know. Um, or we've invented the cure for tooth decay. Or, But I think that um, them, uh, you know, letting us, I mean, they, 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 at a young age, they did, you know, I have memories of them taking us to movies, and they certainly like movies. I mean, our father particularly was a movie fan, but um, but then there was a point where, you know, I think around when I was around 10, 10 or 11, where I started taking you to movies, which, you know, as a parent now, seems crazy that they would let me take you was like six or seven when I was 10 or 11 to the movies. In New York City. In New York City. <laughs> it's like, okay, yeah, just go off to the movies and walk, you know, by ourselves. I don't remember much resistance, like, from, like, the usher. Like, I don't remember, like, encountering no. much resistance. No. I, I mean, it's not like we were going to, like, R-rated movies very often, if yeah. at all. Um, but, but no, they, New York in the 80s, in the mid to late 80s, which was when this was, um, didn't seem to care about its children in the way it does now. <laughs> I, you know, yeah. I, mean, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying it was a, a cold, heartless city. It wasn't. I loved New York and I loved it then. And I miss a lot of things about the city then. But there was definitely sort of an attitude of like, okay, there's a couple of, there's a, a 10 year old with a six year old brother, you know, going to see, you know, Rocky two or whatever. Right. And it, it's fine. You know, well, we also took advantage. Rocky three, it would have been. Right. <laughs> yeah. I don't actually remember seeing Rocky two in a theater, but definitely Rocky three and Rocky four three, many we times. Did. I remember seeing Rocky three in the theater, <laughs> which was the first Rocky I saw in a theater. Yeah, not, maybe not the. Did you, did you hear that Stallone is working on a director's cut of Rocky IV? A director's cut of Rocky IV <laughs> wasn't what was released. A director's cut of Rocky IV. He was the director. Yeah, was maybe there's a, holding him back at that point. Yeah, he was at the height of his powers. You would think he could do. I mean, that film was basically three musical montages. So I'm, I'm anxious to see what he was holding back. <laughs> maybe it's more what, of that robot. What didn't he get to? <laughs> So the other thing we took advantage of, I mean, was sneaking around into the, into multiple movies. I mean, we did double and triple features like it was just part of the deal. Well, I think, yeah, I, it was, it felt like once we discovered that movie theaters had more than one screen in them, <laughs> it was, seemed just like we were supposed to see yeah. more than one movie. No, it's like going to an amusement park. You get to go all the rides. <laughs> why would you just go to one if you're in this theater that has 
four to six screens. I mean, back then that was a lot for six screens. Yeah. But um, I do remember some. Actually, I, now that I think about, it, I do feel like there was some tension sometimes. You, you you were not you definitely were not supposed to do that, and it felt like we had to be a little strategic. There was about it. one like particularly scolding woman, a um, an older lady. I remember at the the Lowe's 84th Street Theater on 84th and Broadway. We that was our theater of choice. That was the that was our local theater, as it were. I remember her giving us looks from time to time. Um, suspicious looks about what these truants were doing. Right. It was a Saturday. It wasn't like we were skipping school. But, you know, um, there was, you know, there was a lot of screens. What were we supposed to do? We didn't no, know any true. better. That's true. That's true. I, I, I was saying before, I mean, in particular, when I think of seeing multiple movies in a day, I feel like we had a tradition going where we would go to summer camp and I remember a few years like day because we I, I would go for summer camp for two months and I would miss all the summer movies and in order to just start catching up we'd see like three movies in a day. Well, to to a a child or a, you know a, a young kid like ourselves who loved movies, summer camp was cruel. It was <laughs> like you know, going away in summer when the movies that were meant for us were being released. Yeah, I don't need to swim, I need to see gremlins. <laughs> right, right. Why was I being sent to the one place where you couldn't see Ghostbusters? Yeah. Where, where, <laughs> where you had to be outdoors, in nature. While, while, while children around America were, were watching gremlins and Ghostbusters and, and you know, all, all the other the fun stuff, um, you know, I guess, um, you know, and then what would happen is, yeah, we would would be at camp for whatever, seven or eight weeks, which was, you know, very nice of our parents to send us to camp, although I'm sure it was a little bit of a selfish motivation of getting the kids out of the house so they could travel and stuff themselves. Right. You know, they were also trying to be nice and expose us to athletics and <laughs> fresh air. But, but same respect, we'd come back and we'd be like, all right, it doesn't matter if it's a flickering image on a silver screen, we will go sit in front of it. Right. And because of that, we did have some memory. I feel like there was one, I think, I think this is all the same summer. There's, there's one triple feature. I want to say... I don't know if I have this right. Teen Wolf, Back to the Future, Real Genius. Would that have been the same year? That was, that was right. Yes. And that, that felt particularly cruel to miss Back to the Future. Like, you know, send a kid away when Back to the Future came out. Yes. But like, but it was interesting. You come back and, and there's two Michael J. Fox movies out. There's Teen Wolf and Back to the Future. Now, as a kid at the time, they're just, there's two Michael J. Fox movies. You don't know the difference. They're, they're just equal. Obviously, yeah. <laughs> you know, so they're they're on an even playing field when you go see them, you know. And up in a you know a a, a log cabin in New Hampshire, they they're not sending you Daily Variety with grosses. I don't know what's a box office phenomenon in sweeping America. For all I know, Teen Wolf is the one. <laughs> you know, right. we went to see both, and I enjoyed Teen Wolf just fine. Sure. I like Back to the Future a lot, you know, but it was, it was, you know, it was, it's funny to see it in that, that context where it's all, you're, you're stripped of any sort of, sort of cultural knowledge of what's going on. So I do remember, do you remember this? I mean, this is a whole another longer conversation, but in brief, we, you know, we were nerds for all kinds of movies. Mm -hmm. um, but we, a big part of our childhoods was sci-fi and Star Trek. We would go to conventions, sci-fi conventions in New York. Mm -hmm. I remember seeing the teaser back to the future at one of those conventions where like they where the like the window comes down don't remember that really but, um, okay but i but i, I believe it happened yeah but i don't remember it okay um but i i do remember um i do remember seeing back to the future with you after summer camp and i remember seeing it like I remember seeing it in Teen Wolf, and and yes, and Real Genius was the other one, which I really liked. Real Genius, 
And um, I still love Real Genius. I think that holds up, right? And I was very, very excited to much, much later in life uh, get to work with William Atherton. Did an episode. He did an episode of Lost for us when when um, my uh, writing producing partner Eddie and I worked on Lost. Um, we cast him in a role in uh, during the final season as a um, as a ornery school principal. That sounds about right. <laughs> That's in his wheelhouse. It was his wheelhouse, and he delivered. And he was he was a very nice man, and he did a great job. And you know. I, it was one of those, you know, that that has been one of the joys of working in the business now is like getting to work with people like yeah. that. Oh yeah, you know, I like William Atherton a lot, and he's uh, <laughs> now can write a role for him. Amazing. The other okay, so the other important before we launch into some specific comfort movies, the other important way we consume movies, which. Um, speaks a little bit to our father's frugal nature, perhaps, or, or sometimes poor decision-making and buying uh, new tech. Um, he decided not to go with Laserdisc, which was one of the burgeoning new technologies of the time. He went with RCA's competitor, the Selectivision. Yes, the Selectivision <laughs> was a, um, a technology that never quite took hold. It looked like a Laserdisc, but it was not a Laserdisc. No. It was, um, as far as I could tell, it was like a, a record with images. Yeah, it's more akin to that. Like it's grooves. It was little, and that's and the Ooh. dust would like literally ruin it. Yeah, I don't even quite understand how the technology worked. <laughs> and I remember him justifying it to us, um, saying he didn't get the laser disc because this was just as good. The only difference is something like after 10,000 plays, the disc wouldn't be any good. But who's going to watch a movie 10,000 That was the only difference. There's no other qualitative difference. Sensible. Well, there was a lot of qualitative difference. The image was not very good. It was, um, you know, maybe a step up from VHS, if that, which we didn't have. We were the last family yep to have a VHS because um, we had a Selectivision disc player which was all you really needed except that you couldn't record anything with it. You just watch a very limited selection. <laughs> I think we were we were probably one of the last 10 families to like stick with it because I was I, I looked it up it, I think like I read the last one they produced I'm pretty sure we owned was Jewel of the Nile and uh, I feel like I feel like I see that in our collection so like from like 81 to yeah 81 to 86 we had like every selectivision disc i i'm impressed that we're still hanging on to the technology in 86 and, and that so are we <laughs> um yeah but because of that there was a limited selection and there was we had a limited library of films um that our father would buy and that would sort of like, that kind of curated our film knowledge a bit just yeah. by what we had. Yeah, we watched those same hundred movies over and over again. And I, and I was thinking before we go into like the specific comfort movies, like I was thinking, I think of the ones that were like a little bit beyond, especially my age. Like mm -hmm. I think of like, he had The Verdict and he yeah. had MASH and like, yeah. Cabaret, even. These were like, I wasn't ready for any of those movies. But I, I saw them. I remember watching Cabaret and at the age of 10 or whatever and liking it, I think, but not quite understanding it. Um, and the same, the verdict was also probably not one that was for 10 year old me. Um, but, but I got there eventually. Um, I do remember. I don't know if you remember this, that the only James Bond movie we had, do you remember this? Was From Russia With Love. Yes, 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 which, yes. Which has remained probably my favorite James Bond movie to this day, and maybe that's why. Yeah, that's interesting. That is my go-to too, and I wonder, it's probably why, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, partially, it is also legitimately It's a great movie, yeah. but it's, and, and, and maybe arguably the best one in some ways, but um, it was also the only one we had, so I watched it. <laughs> 10,000 times until the disc wore out. Yeah. 
Um, okay, so we, we, we're going we're gonna to talk about comfort movies in three buckets. We're just going to kind of free associate it on a few. Um, I think a big one for us um, is the comedy bucket. And you have a comfort movie to start us off with, which wasn't necessarily one of our dad's movies, but it, it kind of dovetails with a lot of the ones. Yeah, that I mean, it is a um, uh, holiday movie, and it is Scrooged which um, is not, you know, maybe the, the standard holiday movie for everyone, but it is one that I go back to over and over again and a movie that I, um, that I do find comfort in, that will always make me laugh and that I always, you know, flaws and all enjoy. Um, like it's, you know, no movie is perfect, I mean, maybe there are a few perfect movies, but but there's a difference between, you know, perfect movies and, and movies you just like enjoy being with. And Scrooge is one yeah. for me that whenever I come across it, I can just watch it at any point and enjoy it. And then, you know, and every holiday season, I wind up watching it or now making my kids watch it. Um, and, um, you know, I think part of it is it speaks to my sense of humor. Um, um, I do, you know, uh, I do distinctly remember seeing it with you, which I don't know if you remember. I do remember. I remember because I remember, I'll never forget like the end when he, spe he speaks to the audience and that feeling unique and odd. I want to say it was in Upper West Side Theater. What, what theater no, was it? Oh, really? It was not. Okay, what was it? It was, um, for anyone from New York of a certain age will remember, the Lowe's Orpheum on the east side, on East 86th Street, which used to be, before our time even, used to be a giant single screen theater when those things used to exist. And then sometime, I'm going to guess, in the early 80s, was split up into two screens where there was one giant like thousand seat theater or bigger that was like the main screen. And then they turned the balcony into a second screen. Now mm -hmm. like four or 500 seats. And the, but the main screen was this like kind of cavernous theater. Oh, um, and that's, that was the one that we saw Scrooge in. And I, and I do remember it was a fairly crowded, yep. um, um, opening weekend audience and they had that whole gag at the end where he's speaking to the audience and telling people to to like sing or stand up or clap. Yeah, on the side of the theater or the next to the And like it was one of those instances where it actually like worked in the audience, <laughs> which was crazy. But um but yeah it was we saw it Thanksgiving night. I remember that. Um nineteen eighty eight. You and I, um, it was after our Thanksgiving dinner with the family and after turkey and all the other stuff and visiting with relatives and everybody kind of drifting off and going home and, and probably around nine or 10 o'clock for whatever reason, our parents let, um, probably it was, I was probably 15 or 16 and you were probably 12. 12, you say you were 12. Yeah. Right. And, um, right. And, yes, I was probably 16 and you were 12. And then they let me take you uh, to the theater. And we went across town and saw probably like a 10 o'clock show with that. Richard, Richard Donner was a big part of our childhood. Our, I mean, yeah. the, the run he was, you know, I didn't realize this. He made this in between Lethal Weapon 1 and 2. Oh, I, I'm a big Richard <laughs> Donner fan. I have been for a very long time. And, um, um, I I briefly got to work for him in one of my first jobs, which I don't know if I've ever told you. I think I remember that. Yeah. Well, one of my first jobs in Hollywood was as a post-production PA, which just meant um, a production assistant for the editorial team on a show called Tales from the Crypt, right. which yep. HBO for a number of years. And Richard Donner was one of the producers and in the pre-internet days of 1995-ish or whatever it was, um, where this was like probably late 94, um, you know, there was 
back then there was no like you know dailies on the internet and all that stuff what would happen is i would wake up at 5 a.m and drive over to a place and physically pick up the dailies and then hollywood and then drive them from hollywood to chatsworth where the production post-production offices and production offices were and then we would like the editorial team would make dubs of them on vhs and then i'd have to drive them to all the producers and there were a lot of producers all over town at paramount and universal there was a million producers on the show and richard donner was one of them and um and i remember uh you know uh having to go to his office like you know every day and briefly getting to meet him and um and uh, on the Warner Brothers lot, which uh, was, you know, I just gotten out of college. And, um, but, you know, the thing with dailies then was they were on VHS tape. So like, you know, you, when you'd have dailies, I'd be literally carrying like a cardboard box that might have 30 or 40 VHS tapes stacked in them. And they had these little narrow pathways on the Warner lot between the little bungalows and I remember just like being very nervous and just wanting to get into the right place. And I remember, um, and this was like very early in my time in Hollywood, just a few weeks in bringing this very nervous one to it right. And I like, I tripped, I fell and all the tapes splattered out of my cardboard box and blocked this like, you know, two foot path. And, and I got on my hands and knees and I'm picking up, trying to get a box. And I feel this like little entourage stop waiting for me to get to pick them up and get out of the way. And I, I look up and staring down at me is Clint Eastwood. And that was the scariest Hollywood moment I've probably ever had. <laughs> just Clint Eastwood just waiting for me to clear the tapes out of his way. Oh my I, God. I, I, anyway. You had a yeah. You had a lot of you had a string of interesting early Hollywood stories. I mean, I still remember just visiting you out there and like getting to read scripts that you were you were getting and reading. That was like my first time ever reading yeah. scripts. But anyway, okay, let's let's talk some more yeah. some more comedies um, because I feel like beyond Scrooge, which I don't know, I don't even know if our dad ever watched, um, but I'm with you 100 percent on that one. But his his comedies, I think of. I think of Mel Brooks, I think of Abbott Costello, I think of Marx Brothers, really silly, big- Pink Panther. Pink Panther, yes. Um, he, I think he exposed, uh, I, I, would, I would credit him with exposing us to all of those pretty much. Yeah, I, I mean, I think Pink Panther, and I think, you know, also, I mean, I, mean, I think he liked Blake Edwards, because I also yes. remember him taking us to see Victor Victoria. We had that on on Select Division too. Yeah, which was not a Pink Panther movie, but it was Blake Edwards movie. And that was like what 1982, something like and, that. Yeah. And yeah, we were pretty young to be seeing Victor Victoria, but yeah. it was. But I still got something out of it, and that was a funny movie. I remember he loved Victor Victoria. That movie was. <laughs> that's a funny movie. That's a big movie. Pink Panther really registered for me. Pink I, Panther was just all of them. Was that was a big thing in our household? Yeah. All of them. Yeah, I feel like we would, we would often quote lines back and forth, Cato and him, and uh, it was, yeah. Um, yeah, no, there was uh, a lot of um, imitating Inspector Cluzo in the house. <laughs> um, and um, he, he got a kick out of Inspector Cluzo and Peter Sellers. He loved Peter Sellers. He also, I mean, different than uh, digressing from Pink Panther. I remember he liked being there. Yes, that was the, that was another one I was going to mention in kind of the adult movies that were on Selective Vision that I was too young for at the time. Right. <laughs> yes. Which I which was I remember I distinctly remember watching being there on one of those discs after yep. watching Panther movies and waiting for the Pratt Falls. Yes. The <laughs> Never Falls came. Not come. <laughs> no. I was like it was that was a hard transition into to Ashby. Yes. But <laughs> but 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 it was. I got there eventually, but, um, but, um, but yeah, no. So his taste spanned all sorts of things, but he really did like Peter Sellers. Yeah. I mean, I remember we had strange glove on, on disc as well. Um, after loved, the Fox was a, Fox. one of his favorites. Yep. That was a big one, which was, I don't know if people are familiar with that one. That's a slightly lesser known one about. It's great though. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, he plays a guy tends to be an Italian film director to do a heist. Uh, it's, it's, so funny um, um, I feel like we should mention Mel Brooks too, because I think Young Frankenstein, in particular, yes. stands up as one of my top comfort movies, and I think it was one of his favorites too. It is. I just 
watched that recently with my children. Um, and it was actually a bit of an ordeal to find. It's like, it was hard to actually find it. Um, oh. I did track it down. Like you had to like, I had to like subscribe to stars or something. Did you not, did you not look up Selectivision discs on eBay? Cause it was definitely on Selectivision. I have, <laughs> have it, but um, it's still funny. Yeah. And it, it played well with two out of three of my children. <laughs> one of them, one of them, the youngest, found it a little scary, which well, is because it, it's like it's so close yeah. to what it is that it did play a little scary for him. Well, it's shot beautifully. It's in black and yeah. white. And like if you weren't listening to the dialogue, you would think you're just watching a, like a beautiful classic horror movie. Yeah. And for my seven year old son, it played a little like that. So he, yeah. he, he was a little, a little frightened. Um, next category, let's talk about our um, kind of suspense films. And the, uh, tell me your comfort movie, which is not, it has some comedic uh, bent to it too, but it's a good entry point. Um, foul Play. That was a big one for me as a kid. And um, I remember that was one that was like on like HBO a lot and like, or like, see Saturday Night Movie or whatever and he and he liked that one yep I remember watching it with him and him getting a kick out of that and so the, for context just a little bit it's a 1978 movie this is um, Chevy Chase Goldie Hawn Dudley Moore um, and it was actually one of I think one of the first like big leading roles for Chevy Chase after SNL yeah um, yeah. It is one of the first, one of his first big leading roles, and there's actually a, a funny moment early in the movie, where, um, which is a slightly strange scene where we meet Goldie Hawn at a party at the very beginning of the movie, and Chevy Chase is there and hits on her, which is like just a way to introduce his character early in the movie because his character doesn't come into the movie until like 45 minutes into the movie because he's like the police detective that gets assigned to the case that. that she's like gets embroiled in this whole mystery thing but they clearly wanted him in the movie early so they put him <laughs> in this opening scene and it's just this big coincidence in the movie that there's really no reason for him to be in that scene but it, like he like kind of hits on her at this party and then at the end of the scene when she kind of rejects him he just kind of stands there and the camera holds him and he just kind of looks at the camera and it's like this like snl like moment almost and you feel like the SNL actor in him there very strongly, but um, there's a little bit of a test run for for Fletch, a little bit more. Um, there's a little Fletch in there too. Yeah, it's. it's a, in. I, I haven't seen it in a while. Have you seen it recently? Does it hold up? It it, it does. Um, it is it is a classic example of how a PG movie in 1978 is very different from a PG movie in present day right and um and also like i was watching it with the family and then it became clear after about a half hour it's probably not appropriate for my children yet <laughs> so um it, it you know it's funny and and it's a pg film and there's some adult themes and it. it's not you know super you know out there but you know these days it would certainly be a pg-13 R-rated movie, um, and you know, there's a whole extended sequence with Dudley Moore in the middle of the movie. That's this funny sequence where she's Goldie Hawn's being chased by the bad guys, and she goes into a singles bar, and she um, asks Dudley Moore to help her out, and he takes her to his apartment, and he thinks she's picking him up, and he the whole misunderstanding, and it's really, it's a little bit of a dated and like. You know, there, it's, uh, I don't know if it's offensive so much because Dudley Moore is, is really portrayed in a negative light for what right. he's doing, but it's not really a, a scene for kids. Right. Uh, it's funny. Um, it's also and, like a, 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 oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, well I was going to say it, it belongs to kind of like a weird subgenre that I really, really, really love, which is kind of inspired a little bit by by Hitchcock and like these kind of ordinary people caught in, in these like yeah. extreme circumstances. You think like North by Northwest is the Hitchcock example that comes to mind most. Um, but then like, I think of something like we, and we've talked about this a lot, 
Silver Streak actually has a, a really a lot of DNA with this one. Well, I mean, and they're both um, Colin Higgins, right? Colin Higgins wrote Silver Streak. Oh, maybe he wrote. I I don't know if he wrote it. Maybe he wrote it. I I know he only directed three films. He directed Nine to Five. And he directed. Well, Foul Play was the first one he directed. Did he? Why? I'm pretty sure. We're looking it up as we speak. Yeah. yeah, he had he 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 died very young, and he has only three directing credits: Nine to Five, Foul Play, and The Best Little Horror House in Texas. I don't know if he wrote um, Silver Streak, but Silver Streak, of course. Yeah, no, he wrote he wrote Silver oh, Streak. Okay, so that makes sense. And Silver yeah. Streak, for those who don't okay. know, it is um is uh, of course Gene Wilder, Richard Pryor, Jill Clayburgh. Um, it takes place a lot. A good portion of it takes place on the Silver Streak on a train. Um, uh, Gene Wilder witnesses what he thinks is a murder. And, um, and yeah, gets kind of caught up in, in circumstances beyond his, uh, his purview, but beyond what he can handle. And, um, and what I found interesting recently, I think I mentioned this to you, is despite it being kind of like a, a Richard Pryor, Gene Wilder movie, Richard Pryor doesn't come in until like an hour into the movie. <laughs> no, very late in the movie. And, um, and there's, there's elements of that movie that probably don't hold up in a modern context. Yes. yes. But, a scene in the bathroom that would probably not work today. Yeah. Um, but, but it's, it is a, it's a well-written and well-made and well-constructed movie like how play is as well in that they, they are sort of spoof isn't the right word so much as they're like kind of, they take the Hitchcock genre and kind of add another genre to it. Like, um, and Colin Higgins was a really, really talented writer. He also wrote Harold and Maude. Oh, wow, I didn't realize that, yeah. Yeah, which was, I think, the first thing he wrote, or at least the first thing that was produced of his. He, wrote, he must have been very young when he wrote that. And he was very young when he died. And yeah. Sad. Um, but, um, but he wrote Harold and Maude, uh, which is another great, um, and, which is not a Hitchcock-inspired thing. It's, no. a, it's a whole other thing. But but Silver Streak has a lot of Hitchcock in it, too, married with sort of a romantic comedy element in it as well, plus also a buddy film element in it. It's got a whole bunch of stuff in it. Yeah. And then Foul Play also is this, like, takes the Hitchcock, like, wrong person in the wrong place uh, conceit of something like, North by Northwest, and then marries it with, um, you know, a buddy cop thing, and um, and a uh, romantic comedy thing, and and um, and turns it into something else. Now, I've always thought, and you know, that you could look at foul play actually as like, in some ways, a oddly like a a a a dry run for something like Lethal Weapon 2. Like, if you Please look explain. at the, <laughs> okay. No, it, not Lethal Weapon 1, but okay. 2. Because if you think about the, the movie, the Brian Dennehy character, mm-hmm. do you remember? And you probably don't, because he's it's a pretty small part in the movie, but Brian Dennehy um, plays Chevy Chase's partner. And oh, okay. Chevy Chase is the crazy cop Brian Dennehy is the sort of button-down cop. They're essentially Mel Gibson, Danny Glover, and they're assigned to deal with this crazy woman. She is essentially the Joe Pesci character. And, and the, it's like Lethal Weapon 2 told from Joe Pesci's point of view. What foul play is here. This is why people come to my podcast for the hot takes on foul play. <laughs> That's perfect. Um, I know we mentioned Hitchcock. Hitchcock, like... Yeah, probably most dads love Hitchcock. But I mean, it's just like it's a you know his body work is amazing. But yeah, we were exposed to a lot of Hitchcock. North by Northwest remains one of my favorite films. But, oh yeah, um, but I, I think of I feel like he liked Spellbound. I, I don't think of like the later ones. I don't think of like Vertigo. Spellbound. I remember that freaked me out. That one. He liked that one. Do you he remember? Did, right? Yeah. Spellbound's the one with where where it ends with the kid going down. Yes. Spoiler. <laughs> Cover your ears at the end of the movie, where the kid slides down the thing and the the, the spike is there. That that freaked me out. Yeah, yeah, that's a good movie. <laughs> um, but, but 
yeah. but that's another one that I probably saw too young. Um, but but as Upley loved that. And the other um, one he loved was um, uh, Oh, Dial for Murder. Oh, Shadow of a Doubt. Yes. Shadow of a Doubt. Yes. Which, um, yeah. Uncle Charlie. That's that's again remains one of my favorites. And um, then oh, yeah. and then uh, Strangers on a Train. Yes. Yes. I think I remember him liking. I think he liked Romama from the train, which is obviously a huge yeah, descendant of. Yeah, that's right. He did. Yeah. Um, okay. The third category, the final category we want to bring up, and this is a big one. Um, he, he loved war movies, even particular World War II films. Um, I would, I guess I would say Casablanca, which is sort of, I guess it is a World War II movie, but it's also a lot of other stuff. Yeah. But, um, but it's, um, that was one of that we had on disc which I watched endlessly, which is, you know, I do think, you know, going back to something I said earlier, actually is pretty close to a perfect movie. Yeah, I, I would agree. <laughs> there's, there's not much to quibble with in that movie. It's interesting now, like showing it to my kids now, you, you know, having to give the context of World War II and what was going on, I had to pause it a lot to explain what was happening and why you would need letters of transit. And like, what, <laughs> What, what, what the whole situation was. And when we saw that movie, and when our father showed it to us in, you know, early 80s, late 70s, whenever it was, you're talking about 35, 40 years after World War II. Right. It was much, oddly, closer and fresher. Now you're talking about, you know, 75 years yeah. later. Truly you know, a different world, yeah. yeah. It's such a different world so far. Um, that it's it's like it is uh it, it it's kind of crazy like kind of trying to contextualize something like that and like so revisiting some of these war movies now is is interesting in that in that way but it's it's a it's a it's a great movie and um that's one i remember and loving and and still holds up what one i remember that um, it's an important one, but maybe it's not certainly on the Casablanca level, um, was Mr. Roberts, um, which I watched over and over and over again, and um, is a war movie. It also has a lot of comedy to it. Um, Henry Fonda, William Powell, James Cagney, Jack Lemmon, um, basically about like an officer on a cargo ship who feels like he's missing the war um, based on a play. Um, yeah, just like I don't know, a super watchable movie, not as grim maybe as a lot of these other films we're talking about. Um, though I remember the ending is pretty tragic. <laughs> yeah, it is pretty. You know, that ending, but but it's also the end. I also remember the ending being, um, if my memory is, because the ending is. Can I spoil it? For yeah, spoiler alert for Mr. Roberts. Right, um, yeah. Seven for, sixty years later. <laughs> all right. So um, it's like Henry Fonda dies. Yes. And then, but then it's like Jack Lemmon is like, he's like suddenly reformed and like, and like he comes and takes over and it's like this very upbeat moment where he's like kind of picks up the mantle. Exactly. So it's, it is tragic, but also kind of upbeat too. Yeah. Um, and then other quintessential ones, uh, I think of, these are all classics, but um, Longest Day, Great Escape, Bridge on the River Kwai, of course. Well, Longest Day was one I always I remember him liking. I remember also liking and watching a lot. And it's, it's, it, that's one of those movies that just has every actor in it. And yeah. It's, you know, it's, um, you know, it's about D-Day and, and all that. And it's, he liked those movies that really, I think also kind of like, recreated things from history like like and tried to like you know sort of be accurate retellings although you know now when you get to things like saving private ryan and stuff where the accuracy gets to another level they there's a sort of quaintness to something like the longest day now yeah got it you know what's interesting you know we were talking about like how he obviously enjoyed Peter Sellers. And then it occurred mm -hmm. to me, I was thinking about some of these films in the war film genre. And mm -hmm. I was thinking about Bridget on the River Kwai. And it, it occurs to me, I think another one he really liked was Alec Guinness. And he actually shares a bit in common, weirdly, with Peter Sellers. He loved 
Al Guinness in Bridge on the River Kwai, but he also loved him in the Ealing comedies. He would always talk oh, about that's right. yeah. the, the Lady Killers, Kind Hearts and Coronets, The Lavender Hill Mob, and some of these movies where he was playing multiple characters. So yeah, I, I, it's interesting. I mean, that's, that's a, a bit of a common theme between Peter Sellers and Al Guinness. He, might, he must have liked these like, virtuosic you know, performances. Characters. Yeah, and no, he did. That's, that's interesting. Um, well, if, if, if nothing else, we've given people a good historical lesson on archaic forms of media that you can no longer purchase. Maybe you can probably purchase a select edition on eBay. Um, we were talking before about like the last film, our film going experiences with him. And they probably were like the, the event films when he would visit you in LA, like the Star mm -hmm. Wars films. He got to see your, he was at the world premiere of Tron Legacy, which was a huge moment for you and the whole family. Yep. And that must've been, I don't know what he made of Tron Legacy, maybe not like what was built for Lawrence Horowitz, but I know he was proud and excited. No, I mean, he said nice things about it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's funny. It's, it's, I don't know how conscious or not it is, but that movie is all about fathers and sons. Yes, so. absolutely. That's what, I mean, you know, had a great influence, you know, on me and on my writing and stuff. And, you know, and and then the films he showed me and exposed me, and even like you know, I mean, I've told you like Foul Play, for example, like you know Goldie Hawn's car in that. You know, for any of you who watched Once Upon a Time, that she drives a yellow bug, and that's the car that you know Eddie and I gave Emma to drive because we're both big fans of that movie. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, this stuff that he exposed to me has been hugely influential. Yeah. My life and career. Um, well, same here, and in, in, in different, unique respects. Um, and yes, yeah, certainly, like I said, um, up until the end, we were talking about movies with him and joking about movies. And I was, I was always telling him like what's on TCM. He became a devoted TCM watcher. Um, so we have a lot to be thankful for. And um, and I think he would appreciate that. This gave us a nice excuse to talk movies and talk about. Um, his influence for an hour and sorry it took this to get you on the podcast yeah. next next time we won't we won't wait for a death you can come back anytime yeah. let's not <laughs> let's not do that <laughs> <laughs> stay tuned for more foul play hot takes with adam horowitz on the next episode of House a lot Sunday. of thoughts on foul play and richard donner <laughs> and so ends another edition of happy sad confused Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley, and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. Fuck.